We are continuing reading in Exodus, and it's starting with chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Again, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in your pew. You can open that up to page 43. Again, we have the continuation of the series in the Ten Commandments for today. We're going to look at the second commandment about worshiping the right God the right way. So follow along again as I read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Please bow our heads and pray with me, please, this morning. Most gracious Heavenly Father, your word speaks so clear to us. You are the true and the living God. There is none like you. Help us to take heart today to your second commandment, that we may worship you in that way which pleases you, the way that which is the right way, Father. May we learn from your commandments that your way is always the best way. Be with Pastor Bruce as he preaches this message this morning. Thank you for your word, and thank you for allowing us to be in your house this morning. In your name, amen. Well, this morning, we want to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments for today. And uh, as we said last week, one of our goals throughout this series is to actually learn the Ten Commandments. Uh, You know, if you're under the age of 40, you probably have heard of them, but maybe, perhaps, for most of us, you haven't ever learned them. And so we want to learn the Ten Commandments as we go through this series. And so you can take out in your bulletin there, you have one of these little cards, which is, uh, it's got... Uh, each commandment, each Sunday, we'll give you one of these in the bulletin, which has the verse uh, for, of the commandment that we'll be talking about. And then there's this insert that actually has an abbreviated form on some of them, all ten commandments. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, let's go ahead and recite the first two commandments, and we'll try to add each commandment as we go through this series and see if by the end of the, week, end of the series we can't learn all ten commandments. Uh, and so commandment number one, we'll say together, and then commandment number two, we'll say together. So let's, let's say, if you need a little cheat sheet, you can use the posters or, or this right here. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And commandment number two is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And of course, other translations, for the word carved image, they'll use an idol, a graven image, depending on what it is. And we'll talk about what that means here in a little bit. Now, as we come to this second commandment here today, I want to begin with, by making a, a, a statement. And, and I, I, what I want us to do is just kind of ponder on this statement uh, as an introduction to the second commandment. And the statement is, everyone leaves behind a legacy. Everyone here leaves behind a legacy. In fact, you not only leave behind, you are leaving behind a legacy. Everybody here is leaving behind a legacy. That legacy will either be a positive legacy, or that legacy will be a very negative legacy. That legacy will either be one that is worth remembering, or it will be a legacy that is not worth remembering. In fact, it may be a legacy that your family wants to reverse. But everybody's leaving behind a legacy. And the question is, what kind of legacy are you leaving behind? Now, some of you here, you may come from a home in a family life, a background where your parents left you a very negative legacy. You look back on your home life and your parents, and you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. My home life, was it was hell on earth. And the legacy they left me, I don't want to follow it. It's not worth following. In fact, it needs to be reversed. I wish I could get out from under it. I wish I could change it. 
And maybe you're on the other side of the boat. You, you come from a home. You come from parents where they left you a very positive legacy. And when, in fact, when you look back on it, you say, man, that's a legacy that's worth honoring. It's worth remembering. It's even worth following and imitating and embracing and trying to carry on for my kids and their kids after. I don't know what side of the legacy you're on. The bigger issue is, what kind of legacy are you leaving behind? Because everybody's leaving behind something when it comes to their legacy. Now, whether we realize it or not, we're greatly impacted by the legacy that's been left behind by our parents. We're greatly impacted by that. And here's the question. It's coming up in your notes here uh, on the screen. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? And here's what I want us to know and walk away with this morning. A legacy that's worth remembering, in fact, even worth following, keeps the second commandment. A legacy worth following and remembering keeps the second commandment. Now, again, one of my goals throughout this series, because when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we have this thinking that they're obsolete. That's the general consensus across even Christians and unbelievers in our world today. Ah, that's just, you know, ten rules, regulations, whatever, for, for Moses and his people. They're not relevant today. Listen, they are. These commandments still impact our lives today. And I want us to see that, that even how we keep or not keep this second commandment is directly tied to our obedience It's directly tied to the kind of legacy we will leave behind for our children and their children. Now, you may have never thought of the second commandment in this way. You may have never given it any thought, and that's all right. But the kind of legacy you leave behind, listen, I'm telling you, is directly tied to your obedience of this commandment. I want us to see it again. Look at the commandment in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. And this time I want us to read it out of the NIV translation. It's there in your notes, and it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of... Of anything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now let's be honest. Again, we think this commandment is the most obsolete of the ten. I mean, we have, and the reason is because we have such a narrow view of idolatry that if we're not actually bowing down to a carved image or a stone statue, then, then this, this commandment has absolutely nothing to do with us. I mean, it, it doesn't really apply to us. How wrong we are in our thinking. As Dr. Albert Moeller writes in his book, he says, we are natural-born idolaters. And it is just good that we admit this up front. So why don't you tell your neighbor, I'm a natural-born idolater. Go ahead, admit it to your neighbor. And if you can't admit it, your neighbor, let them, you you tell it to them. You're a natural-born idolater. All right? Because I'm telling you, that's what we all are, and we just need to admit that. Now, he goes on, Dr. Moeller goes on, in his book, and he makes this statement, and I quote, the reason for this is simple. We must worship. We will worship. The human soul will find an object of worship, either on the shelf, on the altar, in the mirror, or in heaven. We are born idolaters, and our hearts are idol-making factories. That is so true. Now, you may have noticed that the first two commandments are closely tied together. They're closely related. And yet there's differences in them. There is a difference. So what is the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment? Well, notice it here. The first forbids false gods. Whereas the second commandment, it forbids false worship. You can think of it this way. The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God the one true living God, as we saw last Sunday. And the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God, listen, but in the right way. In the first commandment, we must reject every false God in order to worship the true God. In the second commandment, we must not worship the true God in an unworthy manner by worshiping him in the form of any man-made idol. It's interesting, Moses reminded the people that when God spoke to them from Mount Sinai, they, quote, only heard a voice but saw no form. And so he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Moses says to the people, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt 
and make for yourselves an idol, an image in any shape. Why? Because you saw, you didn't see God. You, don't, you saw no form. You only heard him. God is a living spirit. And so to make an image of him, to make a carved image or a mental image or any kind of image is unworthy of his majesty. And it disgraces his deity. As Jesus says in John 4, 24, God is the spirit and those who worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. Hang on to that one. We'll look at that a little bit of how this commandment interrelates with the idea of truth. So, this commandment, it's all about worshiping the right God, but the right way. What does it mean? Let's look at it here. Let's look at the command, first of all. The command, it's simple. God comes out and he basically tells us, don't worship a substitute for me. Don't worship a substitute for God. Notice how the second commandment begins again in Exodus 20, verse 4. God says, you shall not what? Make. You shall not make. Now, that ought to grab our attention since we love to make things. I mean, after all, put a kid in a sandbox, and after about five minutes, ten minutes, it's amazing what a kid will come up with and what he will fashion in a sandbox. Or put a box of Legos in front of a kid. Oh, my word, it's amazing what they can come up with and their creativity, imagination, and what they can build and make. How many of your kids like to build with Legos? My boy, I have two boys, you know, Tyler's even 13, he still loves Legos. Ain't that right, Tyler? Jack is nine, he loves Legos, both of them. And I kid you not, Jack especially now, he's at that age where he gets grounded to his room quite a bit. So he spends a lot of time in his room, and he will sit in his room hours upon hours building out of Legos and building stuff. And I kid you not, every kid who builds Legos, what comes out of their mouth? First thing. Come, look what I made. Look what I made. Every kid stands back, he looks at it, and he admires it, and he almost worships it. In fact, it was funny. Uh, we rearranged Jack's room not too long ago, and we put this book, tall bookshelf in his room, and he had all these Legos that he had made. And so he meticulously set up these Legos on two shelves in the bookcase in his room. For some reason, the shelf fell. And his Lego masterpieces came crashing down, half of them broke to pieces, and I tell you what, you would have thought the world had crashed and burned. The waterworks, the tears, it was unbelievable. I mean, why? Because we love to make things. The problem is we stand back and worship what we make. Now, imagination, fabrication, is a wonderful gift from God, but when used to conjure up our own images of God, it leads us astray. It's quite common to hear people say, oh, I like to think of God as, and then they just add whatever they, it comes to their mind, whatever they want their God to be like. Problem is that our view of God is to be defined by his revelation of himself by his word. And when we conceive God apart from God's word, it always leads us astray. Do you remember what happened when the Israelites lost patience while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God? What were they doing back at the camp? Yeah, they were fashioning a golden calf to worship as a substitute for God. And it's unbelievable what they said about that golden calf. In Exodus 32, verse 4, they say, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, did Aaron and the people really think that this golden calf could remind them of God's power? I mean, this calf did nothing to display God's power and glory and everything to distort his power and glory. And the result of their false worship of this golden calf that they had fashioned was a drunken sex party. You can read all about it. In uh, Exodus 32 there, the Apostle Paul describes this process they went through in which we are still going through today as human beings in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 24, when he says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That is the essence and heart of idolatry. No wonder God says now to his people with the children of Israel and to you and I even today in the 21st century, he says, listen, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. You shall not make any idol in the form of anything. For the Israelites, an idol is exactly like what you picture it to be. And we typically think of an idol. It was something crafted by a tool. Whether it was carved out of wood, chiseled out of stone, or engraved in metal, it was cut and shaped by human hands. It was a man-made representation of some divine being. Now, this did not mean that the Israelites were forbidden to use tools. Nor did it mean that God didn't allow them to produce artwork. In fact, later on in Exodus 31, we find that when it was time to build the tabernacle, God sent the Israelites his very own spirit to devise artistic designs, it says, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So what the second commandment ruled out was not making things, but making things to serve as objects of worship. This is clarified in the second part of the command in verse 5, when it says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That word serve them can be translated worship them. The Israelites, in other words, they were strictly forbidden to make images of God to use in worship. And although God appreciates artistry, listen to me, he does not and he will not tolerate idolatry. Now, keeping in mind that an idol is much more than just a wooden statue carved for worship, let's ask the question, what is an idol then for us here today? Because I don't know too many of us, at least in American culture, that we have a statue or a carved image that we actually bow down and worship to. So what is an idol for us today? Well, notice it here in your notes. An idol is anything that captures the heart. Captures the heart and is inflated to function as a substitute for God. Boy, that speaks to every one of us. Every one of us, including myself. Look what the Apostle John writes to believers, no less, in 1 John chapter 5, 21. He says, little children. What he means by that is sons and daughters of God. Little children, keep yourselves from idol. In fact, this is the summary concluding verse. It's the last verse in the book. Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let it be. Now, what was he talking about? A hunk of metal? A statue chiseled out of stone? Or was he talking about something much more? Well, I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, God's real attack is on mental images, of which metal images are more truly the consequence than the cause. In other words, here's what I would suggest, that our idols today are more mental than metal. Matthew Henry explains it like this, who was a longtime commentator and theologian. He says, since you know the true God and are in him, let your light and love guard you against all that is advanced in opposition to him or competition with him. Cleave to him in faith, in love, in constant obedience, in opposition to all things that would alienate your mind and heart from God. And that's the whole problem with idols. It captures our heart and turns our heart from the one true God. It alienates us. So what are some of those images in our world today that would alienate our mind and heart from God? Well, Pastor Rick Warren says, we don't worship objects as much as we worship images. Images of success, images of wealth, images of status, images of sensuality. And he's right on. Think about it with me for a moment here. We are surrounded today by more images than we've ever been in the history of the world. 
we are blitzed, or we were blitzed, by these images first through billboards and television. And then along came the computer. And we were blitzed more by images. And now today, we are blitzed by these images 24-7 through our smartphones, iPads, iPhones, it doesn't matter, you, whatever handheld device you have. We are constantly being blitzed by the world's images. Mitchell Stevens of New York University says, the image is replacing the word as the predominant means of mental transport. What he's saying here is, we live in an image-based culture where the primary means of mental transport, and by mental transport, all he's saying is the exchange of ideas, the exchange of truth. We are living in an image-based culture where the primary means of mental transport is the visual rather than the verbal. Now, for some of us, you were like, ah, man, this is, but it's so cool. It's so neat, man. It's just technology catching up. It's just the culture we live in. But I ask you the question, is this for the better or is this for the worse? Michael Moriarty writes in his book, The Perfect Ten, a culture that is rooted more in images than in words will find it increasingly difficult to sustain any broad commitment to any truth since truth is an abstraction requiring language. Images stimulate the senses and numb the consciousness, making idle production more subtle. This serves a postmodern culture well since there's no real commitment to truth. So what's the result of all this? What's the result of living in an image-based culture like we do today? And there's no turning back from it, by the way. It's here to stay, and it will only get progressively worse. So what is the result of all this? Well, 20 years ago, Neil Postman writes, the result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death with the visual. Did you catch that? We're amusing ourselves to death with the visual. And the whole goal of visual images, let me tell you, is to capture as many people as possible. You say, capture what? Capture our attention. Capture our time. Capture our money. Capture our commitment. Capture our hearts. And ultimately, to capture our worship. So how do these false images affect us over the long haul? What if we allow this to become the norm in our lives? How does it affect us? Well, this is where the Bible makes some amazing and even frightening statements. In Psalms chapter 115, verses 4 and 8, it tells us, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have had they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And here's the key part, verse 8. Those who make them, make what, the idols, or for us, these images will be like them. And so will all who trust them. In other words, I will become just like that image I pursue. This is a profound truth. Listen, this, this, God says the same thing over in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, and this is in your notes here. He says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and they became what? Worthless themselves. The New American Standards Version translation says it this way. They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. So why is worshiping a false image, which is our idols today, why is worshiping a substitute for God, which is what an idol is, why is this so dangerous in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, notice this, because the clear fact is we become like that which we worship. We become 
like that which we worship. And God knows this. God understands this. He knows the hollow despair that follows such a life. He knows that these worthless substitutes that our world puts out will leave us empty-handed and unfulfilled in life. Our Father knows that these false images offered by this world, we can say this way, they are bankrupt. He knows that if we pursue them, in the end, we will find ourselves, listen to me, disappointed, We will find ourselves deceived, devastated, and worthless. Listen, make no mistake about it. The false gods of this world will lead you astray. They will drain you dry and then discard you. They will deceive you, disappoint you, and ultimately they will destroy you. We live in an image Based culture that is amusing itself to death with the visual. And yet, here's the great part. Here's the good news. Here's the hope that we have. We do have an image that is worthy of our worship. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true image. Not one that we have made with our hands or invented in our imagination. As Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So why in the world would we waste our time, waste our resources, chasing false images and worthless shadows that leave you bankrupt? No wonder God says to his people in love, in the second commandment, listen, don't worship a substitute for me. I'm the real deal. I'm the real thing. Worship me instead. Now, there are many good reasons for this command, as we've already seen. But God gives us one specific reason within the command itself. Notice at number two, the reason for the command is because God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, for I, the Lord your God... And a jealous God. Now, isn't that an odd statement? God, jealous? But God makes no apology for his jealousy. He is very, very jealous for you and me. Jealous is a strong word here. And it's intentional. It describes God's zeal or burning passion of his love for you and I. Now, let's agree right off the bat here that jealousy means something much different to God than what it normally means for you and I here. Because when we think of jealousy, we think of all the negative aspects to it. We think of envy. We think of the desire to get something that doesn't belong to you. However, however, consider this thought. When something really does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be protected. So a holy jealousy, a godly jealousy, is one that guards someone's rightful possession. Now, the most obvious example of that is the love between a husband and wife. No husband who truly loves his wife could possibly endure seeing her in the arms of another man. It would make him intensely jealous, and rightfully so. Listen, God feels the same way about us as his children. His commitment to us is total. His love is exclusive. It's passionate. It's intense. In a word, it is jealous. So God is jealous when I, as his child, as his son, or as a daughter, when we begin to flirt with destructive false images and substitutes for him. Later on, you know what the Bible really calls this? It's not just idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. Because we're in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we're cheating on his love. And his love for us. Now, if that is what jealousy means, then God has to be jealous. He loves us too much not to be. As Christopher Wright says, a God who was not jealous would be contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. 
And then he goes on, he says, but part of the problem with this profound covenantal reality is that we have come to regard religion, like everything else in this world, as a matter of consumer choice. We resent monopolies. But the unique and incomparable only living true God makes us necessarily exclusive claims and has the right to a monopoly on our love. Jealousy is God's love protecting itself. See, what God so jealously protects in the second commandment is the honor of his love. God not only loves us, but folks, listen to me. He wants us to love him in return. And that means accepting no substitutes. Accepting no substitutes. Why? Because God is a jealous God. Look at this in your notes. Worshiping the right God the right way When we don't accept any substitutes in our worship and love, listen, it will delight you and it will deliver you. I love that. You know, it is is amazing to me the prices we pay to worship substitutes for God. We know people, we see people selling their souls for things that God offers so freely. Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The world says, seek this, this, and this. God says, seek me. Do you want fulfillment in life? Then accept no substitutes in your love and worship of God. Don't settle for an image of God. Instead, do what the psalmist said in Psalm 37, 4, where he says, delight yourself also in the Lord. and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Do you want to experience true freedom in life? Then set your heart on Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. How many people do you know who are in bondage to sin, in bondage to their false images in this life? Because they're worshiping a substitute for God. When God all along has sent his son to free us from that bondage and to give us and deliver us freedom. Now, I want us to pause just for a moment because there's a great application so far here for us as a church body and even for us personally in our worship when it comes to this commandment. And so I want us to tackle this just a little bit and ask the question, how should all this impact my personal worship and how should this impact even our corporate worship here as a church body? In fact, this is, I, I, I changed the place in, our, in the message for it. If you want to fill in the blank, it's at the end of your notes there. But and the question is, what does the second commandment say about our worship today? And here's the answer I want to give us. At least what I believe as an applicational point from this commandment so far. We must be very careful that the visual never eclipses the verbal in our worship. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Do you find it interesting that God provides no likeness of himself anywhere in his word or even in any kind of other revelation? God provides no likeness of himself. Listen, the way, don't overlook this, the way God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel was not through a visible image but through his spoken voice. Now, this ought to say something to us. This ought to tell us something about the way God wants to be worshipped. God does not invite us to gaze on him, but rather to listen to him. And I understand, we are living in an image-based culture. Listen, I understand that. And it's not going away. And I do believe that the visual can enhance a worship experience. You could go to extremes on this, and and some churches do. There needs to be balance. Listen, 
The visual can enhance our worship, but listen to me. I'll qualify it with this. But not if it distracts us from hearing the Word of God. That's one of the problems when the visual becomes the supreme focus and priority, either with us personally or within a church congregation. It hinders us from hearing God's voice through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. So here's the point of application. In an image-based culture, we just need to be very careful that we don't get all caught up in the visual that we neglect the verbal in our personal and corporate worship. There's a reason why God spoke. The question is, are we listening? Not only with our ears, but with our hearts. The second commandment is so important. It's amazing. It's the only commandment that comes with a warning and a promise. Let's look at the warning first. Number three. Here's God's warning to us. He says the consequences of false worship will last for generations. This is a warning that most people tend to just pass over, tend to neglect. And to be honest with you, just tend to poo-poo. Listen to me. God says idolatry has consequences. And you better not just pass over that. This is stated quite forcefully when God says in Exodus 20, verse 5, look at it with me. I want you to see it. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In other words idolatrous actions have consequences, and those consequences, they don't die when we die. In fact, God says those consequences will run for generations. Why? Because when we disobey the commands of God, we do not do so in isolation. Stay with me on this. You may be asking yourself, but... But man, Bruce, I, I can't get over it. Why? Why are the consequences of false worship or idolatry, why are they so severe, though? Well, if we want to be really short, it's because God's a jealous God. And he's protecting his love and his honor. But let's, let's look at it. Let's explore it a little bit. God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who ha- hate me. You've got to admit, that's a pretty severe consequence. For someone who's dilly-dallying around with false images and idolatry. The word iniquity here, it refers to something twisted. It suggests that idolatry is a kind of perversion. It's an actual turning against God. We're following God and now we twist and turn against him to serve a false image of him, an idol of him. Idolatry, you see, in our culture, I'm telling you, it just, we just think it's no big deal. But God, he doesn't think like you and I. He says, this is a very big deal to me. And we, what we fail to realize is that God hates idolatry. Why? Because idolatry is a really a way of showing one's hatred for him. So it's not surprising that God threatens to punish those who what? Hate him. Remember, he's a jealous God. Now, what most of us here are really wondering, however, is whether these consequences are fair, whether they're just. I mean, how could God do this? You see, the question we really want to ask in our hearts is, will God really punish my great-grandchildren for the things I do? Is that really fair? How can God judge the children for the sins of their fathers? And again, this notion, it's so difficult for us to comprehend here in America since we place such a a high premium on what? The individual. We're all about the individual. We're all about individual rights. We're all about propping up my kid, adoration to him. It's all about the individual here in America. And so here in the West, we don't comprehend what God is saying here. And why he's doing it. But the Bible warns us that there is such a thing as corporate responsibility. None of us 
again, functions in isolation. So what a father passes on to his children, listen to me, is not just a bad example, but the consequences of his sin. Now let me try to further explain what this means and how this actually plays out in a family. Now this is not in your notes, but it's going to come up on the PowerPoint here. And that is, number one, first of all, sins are often repeated in families. In fact, even patterns of sin are developed in families over time. And it's amazing. God has so delicately constructed the home that children do what? They imitate their parents' patterns of behavior, whether good or bad. This parental influence is incredibly powerful so that the sins of the parents are often adopted by their children. In fact, you realize there's an abundance of research that shows that when parents are dominated by idols of some kind, whether it's excessive drinking, whether it's drugs, whether it's promiscuity, it doesn't make any difference, the sinful behavior patterns are often passed on to the children. In other words, if God is not honored, the parents' idols go on to mold and shape the children. This is exactly what took place when King Solomon's idolatrous heart was passed on to his son, Rehoboam. A third way to explain, a second way, it's not only the sins are often repeated, but judgment for sin is often delayed until the third and fourth generations. As one commentator said, each generation stands in a place of mounting guilt under the accumulating sins of the fathers. And if you want one biblical example of this, all you got to do is go to 2 Kings chapter 10, where you will read all 70 of Ahab's sons were killed as a result of their father's idolatry. Number three, the effects of sin can last for generations, even on those who are not committing the same sins. Now, let me just say, please hear this. I do believe that God, the emphasis here, is not so much a word of judgment pronounced upon the children as it is a word of warning to us as parents. Parents, listen, we are called here to count the cost of the effect that our sin will have upon our families. One generation turns its back on God, and the next generation grows up without Him. If you want an example of that, just read the book of Joshua and then immediately read the book of Judges. All sin has a domino effect. And we as parents, we need to ponder the punishment our children will face for our sins, which we have learned probably from the example of our own parents. This is why one of the first questions, you go into a counseling session, and what's the first question a counselor is going to begin to ask about? Tell me about your family. How's your relationship with your mom and dad? What were your parents like? Your siblings, their parents. Tell me a little bit about your family history. There's a reason for that. Now, at the same time, this does not deny individual responsibility. Listen, God holds each of us accountable for our own sin. You could go to the Bible in Ezekiel 18.20 where God says, The soul whose sin shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. But understand, the context of that is really in the courts of Israel. God never condemns the innocent, but only the guilty. This is why God says that he will punish three or four generations of those who hate me. Understand here, God makes it clear. It's not just the fathers who hate God, but it's also their children who hate God, which given the way they were raised, it's not surprising. They follow after their father's footsteps. So it's more than fair. It's more than just for God to punish children for their sin and their father's sin. Why? Because they hate God just like their fathers hated God. Now that's pretty depressing news, isn't it? But there's hope and there's good news right here. So thankful God doesn't end there. The good news is this. This sinful generational chain can be broken, listen to me, by anyone who abandons their idols and chooses to love and obey the living God. 
you can leave behind a legacy that's worth remembering because of God's promise in this commandment. Look at it. He says the blessings of true worship will last forever. Woo! Amen, right? That's worth getting excited about. God promises at the very end of this commandment, look at it, to show mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You say, well, is that really true? Is that just hyperbole? No, man, this is really true. God promises, listen, God's promise is greater than the warning because his blessings, get this, last not just for three or four generations, but for a thousand. And the emphasis there is too much to count. It's forever. All we have to do is respond to God who loves us by loving him in return. Now, there's no doubt in an audience this size that God's warning in the second commandment, it may seem awful discouraging to someone who comes from a family that does not honor God. And maybe you're sitting there right now and you're like, man, I look at my mom and dad and my grandparents and they didn't know God. They didn't go to church. They didn't take me to church. They didn't. God and church and the farthest thing from my home life growing up. My dad didn't honor God. He cursed God. And so right now you may feel this is the most discouraging thing in the whole world. But I want you to please know, listen to me, that God's blessing triumphs over God's curse here. And because we serve a gracious God and a redeeming God, as we have seen so far, he often, listen to this, he intervenes in the history of a family to turn their hatred into love and worship. Do you realize this is exactly what God did for Abraham? Who was Abraham before God intervened into his life? The Bible says and uses the word he was a pagan. He served idols. And God comes in and intervenes and chooses him, not because of anything that Abraham did. He hadn't done anything but curse God. But because of God's grace and love, he comes in and chooses him out and says, listen, I'm, I want you, Abraham. I'm choosing you. You worship me, and I will bless you for generations to come. Listen, God, when he calls a family to leave its idols behind and worship him, and when God does that, you know what he does? He establishes a legacy that's worth remembering. And as his grace rests on a family from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next. So let's go back to our original question at the beginning. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? And please... If you're under the age of 30, if you're in your 20s, don't think, a legacy, man, that's stuff for my grandparents. What you establish now in your 20s and 30s and graduates, what you establish now in the next four years will go on to impact you for the rest of your life. You are establishing your legacy now. What are you leaving behind? What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? This is a solemn warning for parents, but especially to us as fathers here today. When a father refuses to love God passionately and worship God properly, the consequences of sin will last for generations. But a father who truly loves God, worships God, will see the blessing of God rest on his family forever. So dads and moms, here's the bottom line that I can say to you this morning. The greatest thing you can do for your kids, and I mean the absolute greatest thing you can do for your kids and their kids, is to worship God and to do so in the right way. You want to leave a legacy behind that's worth following? Then worship the right God in the right way. You say, well, how do I begin that? That's a great question. Because really, we need to ask, what can save us from our own private idolatries? And the answer is simple. Rather than remaking God into our image, we need to be remade into His image through a saving relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Hang, hang with me just for two more minutes and we'll be done. I know this message has gone a little longer than normal. 
Do you realize that we were created according to God's image? Think about that. The Almighty God, we were created in His image. We were made to be like God and to reflect His awesome glory. As John Calvin said, God cannot be represented by a picture or a sculpture since He has intended His likeness to appear in us. This means we're not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. Oh, man, but we got a huge problem, don't we? We got one colossal problem staring us in the face with this. Because our ability to do that was badly damaged by our fall into sin. You see, the image of God in us has been defaced, has been twisted by our sin, so that we are no longer able to reflect God's glory as He intended. But here's the good news. I mean, God has sent His Son Jesus into the world to repair His image in me. To repair His image in you. And when we receive Jesus Christ by faith, through God's grace, then the Holy Spirit lives within us. And you know what the Holy Spirit begins to do? He begins to work in us and work on our lives and to repair God's image so that we can now, get this, live for God's glory. With your heads bowed. And as we come to our response time, listen, let me, let me ask you again. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? What kind of legacy are you leaving behind right now, today? But that legacy, listen, if you want to leave behind a legacy that's worth remembering, it begins with a commitment to worship God the right way through a saving relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the more important question then for those, for some of you this morning... Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to the cross? Have you confessed your sin and asked God to forgive you and to receive him into your heart and life and ask him to be the Lord of your life? That's where it begins for you. And today, it can start. Will you cry out to Jesus this morning? For those who are already believers, maybe we need to do some work before God and do some confessing of sin or whatever it may be. As the praise team sings, here's our opportunity. Thank you for the cross.